In M. Night Shyam, you know who I'm talking about, right? In his 1999 psychological thriller, The Sixth Sense, the main character, Bruce Willis, gets shot at the beginning of the movie. And what happens over the course of the rest of the movie is the audience fails to connect that detail to the strange relationship that we see between Willis and his wife. She never responds to him when he asks questions or makes any comments. Nor do we as the audience make the connection between Willis's character, who is a child psychologist, and the patient he is seeking to help, who says he can see and talk with the dead. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this movie, you've had 24 years. <laughs> Willis is dead and he doesn't know it. When God wouldn't answer Saul's questions, he sought help from the dead. And he discovered that he would die the next day. That we see that communicating with the dead leads to death and understanding of it. For Willis's character, he is communicating with a, a boy and discovers that he is dead. Saul appeals to this medium, this necromancer, and finds out that he himself is dead. So this morning, if you would open your copy of the scriptures and join me in 1 Samuel chapter 27, page 249 in the Bibles that are provided, and if you're visiting with us and you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, please take that Bible. It's a gift from South Canyon to you. We hope that you will read it and find um, both comfort in Christ and a and an understanding of the salvation that he offers. So this morning, as we do week to week, we work through passages of Scripture. We try to understand what the passage is saying, what it was also saying to its first audience before we get to how does it apply to us today. So this entire section, chapter 27 through the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, is one section, and I think it has an apologetic tone, not in the sense, I'm sorry for doing something, but in a defense of David's dynasty. You see, David fled to the Philistines, as we remember in chapter 21, once before, and now, yet again in chapter 27, he thinks he has no other choice but to do it again. And those that would have opposed David's reign, taking the throne after Saul, or maybe the sons of David who still ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah, they would argue that David sided with the Philistines in the great war and he settled his score with Saul in order to gain control of the throne. But these five chapters, 28 through 31, they actually show us something completely different than that idea, that this was all conspiracy theory. The narrative pro provides overwhelming evidence it begins with David in chapter 27, and then it shifts quickly to Saul in 28, and then we ping-pong back to David in chapter 29 and 30 before running to Saul's final scene in chapter 31. And so, in reality, these chapters are focusing not on two armies that are preparing for war, but on two different men. It also reinforces the fact that David did not fight against Israel in the great war, nor did he raise his hand against Saul. 
Chapter 24 makes it clear that David sought to help his people and he fought against Israel's enemies. In chapters 29 and 30, they will tell us, as we will see in a few weeks, where David was and what he was doing at the very moment when the great war between the Philistines and the Israelites took place. Although David was associated with the Philistines, make no mistake, he was no traitor, he was no usurper to the throne. In fact, what we see in this larger narrative is that in God's grace, he delivered David from the battlefield, and yet God's grace is absent from Saul. In fact, we find that he is under divine judgment. So let's look at chapter 27. Here's an overview of it, lengthy passage. We're not going to read through it. Uh, We have these sermon cards that are on the desk out there. Tanner's going to be preaching the next four Sundays. Looking forward to hearing him exposit 1 Corinthians chapter 15, teaching us through God's Word. So pray for him and study in preparation. Read through the passage, familiarize yourself so that you come together in these moments and it's just the learning and the shaping and the influence of God's Word on our lives. It just bears so much more fruit by doing that. So David, in chapter 27, as I said already, he fled to the Philistines, and once again he seeks protection from the king of Gath. He asked Achish, and I think that's a title for the Philistine kings. He asked the king for a place to live outside the royal city, and he was given Ziklag, which ironically turns out to be an ideal location, because it's outside of Saul's territory, so Saul isn't pursuing David anymore, and it's actually outside of the royal city, so the five cities uh, that made up the primary cities of the Philistines, he's away from that out of their watchful eyes, and it is a place for David to find some rest. But this remote city also had its disadvantages, as we will see in chapter 30. Because it was so removed, it was vulnerable to attacks from the desert, For 16 months, David lived among the Philistines. And in Achish's service, he refined his skills as a warrior by making raids upon the territory in southern Israel. In the eyes eyes of the king of Gath, these raids had made David so, so repulsive to the Israelites that he would never be able to return to them, and therefore he would always be Achish's servant. What actually ends up happening, as we read in chapter 27, is that David is concealing the fact that he's not fighting against Israel. He's fighting against the peoples that were left in the land after the conquest of Joshua. And David is making sure that he wipes out everyone so that there's no word getting back to Achish about what really is taking place. And so as we come to chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, notice this. David's charade, his scheme, had worked so well that Achish says, Hey, poster boy, come with me, you and your men. The Philistines are gathering for war against the Israelites, and you will stand by my side. What is so interesting about this is that David struck down Gath's champion, and now he becomes Gath's champion. And that's right? We'll get to the significance of that in a little bit. 
But we are left. The narrator wants us to keep moving back and forth between these chapters. He's raising tension. The question now is, what is David going to do? Will he raise his hand against his king, Saul? Will he fight against his covenant brother, Jonathan, who has been so faithful to him? Will he kill his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, people of the covenant? But we are whisked away from David in the Philistines to Israel's camp. And in chapter 28, we watch as a terrified Saul seeks an answer about his future in verses 3 through 25. As in the sixth sense, the scene opens with some important details. Samuel was dead. We were told that in chapter 25 and verse 1. And we are also told that Saul had killed or chased all the mediums and necromancers out of the land. And then we see that in this terrifying situation in which he finds himself, Saul inquires of the Lord. Using all the right means, all the things that he should have done. He prayed, he fasted, he waited for dreams to come. He, he sought the Urim, which is kind of ironic given that he killed all the priests. I don't know who was doing that task for Saul. But then even the prophets that had arisen after Samuel had no word from God for Saul. And we're told that God did not answer him. And so as we come to chapter 28, we see that when Saul couldn't get revelation, he sought divination. A practice the Lord had forbidden his people to use, Saul stopped seeking the Lord, and he started seeking for a woman who could consult the spirits of the dead. And perhaps this was a reference to the sun goddess, who was the goddess of the dead spirits of the, of the underworld, but here it is, without revelation, we naturally, by our nature, are always seeking someone to tell us what to believe, what to do, how to live. He was determined to get an answer even if it meant using a medium. And as he comes and he finds out, oh yes, his servants are quick to know, here's a woman in Endor. Verse 8 He comes and he tells the woman in his disguise to divine for me by a spirit. In other words, use illicit magic and divination practices that were forbidden in Israel and which he himself as the king had sought to eradicate from the country and consult with the spirits of the dead. Twice Saul says, once in verse 8 and once in verse 11, bring up a ghost from the underworld. And what we see from Saul is that he is so much more. He's beyond the past, uh, beyond desperation. He is determined to get an answer. So much so that his seeking will lead him to disobey God to get what he wants. I think it's ironic. I don't know if you noticed this. I'm, I'm sure you did in verse 10. That Saul invoked Yahweh's name in verse 10 to assure this woman who thinks she's being set up for a trap that no, 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 as the Lord lives, you're fine, you're fine. Interesting, isn't it, that so often we as Christians don't see our own contradictions as we pursue sin. I mean, Saul is invoking the living God to promise a woman who consults with the dead. Do you see that? 
abandoning the living God to seek from the dead. The contradiction is just striking. And I think the text wants us to understand this. Saul was so far from the Lord at this time in his life that he couldn't understand that in fact God in his silence had indeed answered him. His, he was told that the kingdom would be taken from him. He has acted like an unbeliever. And either he is so far from God that he doesn't understand that God's silence is a loud no, I'm done with you. Or else he did understand it and Saul is just as equally determined to get a better answer. To get another answer. A more favorable one. Now, we are right to ask, what in the world is going on here? Because as you look at verses 12 through 15, something extraordinary happened. And I think it might have happened all at once. So the, the witch, the medium, the necromancer, the woman who has the power to speak with the spirits of the dead, she does whatever she does. And perhaps as Samuel is coming up, the medium heard Samuel call Saul's name and suddenly she realizes that her client is none other than Israel's king. And then what next? But she has God's prophet in her living room and she's terrified for her life. Or maybe her fear was the fact that something actually happened beyond her normal tricks and sleights of hand. Or perhaps she knows that she didn't, because of Saul's urgent nature, she didn't have the time to go through all of the steps of the ritual, and yet something still happened. Or maybe that, that there was a power that filled that space that was stronger than her witchcraft, and it took over, and it brought Samuel up. Or that Samuel's appearance and his actions didn't follow the pattern of the spirits that she normally worked with. Whatever it was, this woman was terrified. And we can be confident that these events actually took place. This was not a dream, a hallucination. Saul knew who Samuel was when he saw him. Saul spoke to Samuel just as he had done many times before. Samuel is even a witness to the veracity of this testimony. He complained and rebuked Saul. Why did you call me out of the grave? In fact, why did you invoke the dead? And we find Saul's own words condemning him because in chapter 10, or in verse 10, he said that God was the God of the living. In, in fact, what Samuel was saying, why didn't you call upon the living God? Why are you consulting the dead? Now, let's be very clear about this. The scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, make it very, very clear. It's repeated in Exodus and in Leviticus that this was forbidden for God's people. Consulting with the dead, witchcraft, idolatry, all of this, what we would classify as the dark arts, was forbidden for God's people. These practices were forbidden because they were pagan, not because they didn't work. Now, this is a scary thing. There is a darkness in this world, one who portrays himself as the prince of light. 
And while he can't see the future, and while he is not omnipresent, he's not everywhere at all times, he is not all powerful, he is not all knowing, he can set a trap and draw us into things that God has no plans for us to be a part of. God forbid his people from using them, not because they didn't work, but because they were evil. And what God allowed here in, in this chapter in no way overturns the teaching that we find in Deuteronomy 18. No one who calls upon the name of the Lord is permitted to do such things. Not playing around with Ouija boards or tarot cards. Not even looking at your horoscope and the signs. Crystals. All of this new age, sciencey stuff, dark arts, magic. It is, has no place in the Old Covenant or under the New Covenant. Samuel's words in verses 16 through 19 clearly promise God's judgment. Saul, let me just be very clear to you. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that God has judged you and he has turned away from you. And in fact, he has become your enemy. Because you rejected God's word, he has rejected you, Samuel says to Saul in verses 17 and 18. It goes back to what we learned from chapter 15. And we would do well to remember not just what, what led to this moment in Saul's life from chapter 15, his disobedience, but we would also do well to remember all the way back to the first few chapters of the book of Samuel when we were told that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Until God raised up a prophet and gave him his word and established him in the eyes of all Israel that Samuel was indeed a prophet of the Lord. And then when the people who are hungry for God's word hear the word, it is to bring life to them as Samuel delivered them from the great hordes of the enemies that they fought. But if God's word was rare... And God began to speak through his prophet. Why did Saul repeatedly reject God's word? What does that tell us about the nature of man? Where we want to take control of a situation. Where we are going to accept things where it's convenient for us. But then we're going to go and pursue our own path. We'll obey in spirit but not in letter. Might have been a bumper sticker on Saul's chariot. The man who had repeatedly rejected God's word is now desperate to hear from God and in doing so, once again violates God's word in order to hear. Isn't this just sad? How we can twist right and wrong around in our minds. We can argue with ourselves and we can convince ourselves that what we're really doing is for the greater good. But it's too late for Saul. God has indeed rejected him. And the seance revealed to him that God's rejection was not far. In fact, the very next day, we are told, he and his sons would join him in the grave. Let me just say something to you. Very, very simply. The worst thing that can ever happen to you is what? You fill in the blank. And then I want to tell you, no, you're wrong. 
The worst thing that can ever happen to you is to be abandoned by God. There is no doctor that can cure that. There is no money that can solve that. There is no hope in heaven or on earth that can solve the problem when you are abandoned by God. This is heavy, heavy stuff. No doubt Saul thought his need for direction justified this evil act. But just as we saw in chapter 15, verse 23, God called it rebellion. And he said, rebellion is as the sin of divination. Saul, you going to consult the dead is just as bad as what you did by not obeying my word. He goes on to say, the presumption is an iniquity, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Samuel makes it very clear, you, your sons, will be with me tomorrow. And the army of Israel will be defeated at the hands of the Philistines. And so Saul learns from the dead that he would join the dead. And then what do we see in verse 20? He collapses to the floor. There's no strength left in him. And then the narrator picks up speed again in verses 21 through 26. Saul is cajoled by the woman and his servants to eat. And then he and his servants left, yet again under the cover of darkness. You see, this man disguised himself. He traveled in the dark of night with hope. But then he leaves a house. Stepping back into the darkness with none. All that he knows is bad news. This story <clears throat> depicts the futility. Davis or Sumara says this in his commentary. This story depicts the futility of conjuring up the dead since this results in an announcement of death. In other words, to speak with the dead is to join the dead. And now we see why the narrator jumps so quickly from David in chapter 27 to Saul in chapter 28. We've worked our way through the text, and now what we're going to do in the next few moments is work on the application. We understand what Saul did was wrong, and so let's put it all together. One might think that it was David who was as he's surrounded by his enemies, the Philistines, as he's masquerading as a champion, but he's actually delivering Israel, one would say that he was in greater danger. And in truth, he was. He was in enemy territory. But then when you go from David's story to Saul's story, what you find out is that the most dangerous place to be is to be cut off from communicating with God. We spent time... Working through this, let's put it all together. And let me share two observations from David's time in Gath and Ziklag. This is for the believer, all right? First, did you notice that there is no mention of God at all in chapter 27? No mention of God's protection, God's direction, or any commentary on David's actions by God or the narrator. There's no mention of David asking for wisdom. I'm not sure that we should interpret this as a good thing. 
Perhaps what David said in chapter 26 in verses 19 through 20, Saul, if men have stirred you up to pursue me, then know this, they are driving me away from God. My blood will be spilt on a ground that is not the covenant land of promise. I am not going to be able to worship God. I'm going to be going after false gods if I'm driven away from the covenant community and the corporate worship of God's people. Perhaps David's fears had come true. He's left God's land. He's left God's people. The worship of God has gone behind. David, in every sense of the word, has become a Philistine. Here's a second observation from chapter 27. His raids, although they were against Israel's enemies, those nations and people groups that were left over from the conquest, His attacks were unprovoked and they were devastating. He is the aggressor and he is rising up against unsuspecting towns and cities. The blood he spilt is not the result of God telling him to go and put these people under the ban as God told Saul to do with the Amalekites in chapter 15. It appears that David used these raids primarily to keep himself in Achish's favor, which is why he made sure there was no survivors to go back to tell Achish, uh, no, 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 Philistines aren't, or uh, Israelites aren't dying at David's hands. It's all the other people. Joel and Tanner and I were talking about it this week, about whether this passage was the reason that David was told later that he would not be able to build the, tap, the temple to the Lord because there was so much blood on his hands. And while the text seems sympathetic toward David, it also seems critical of him. Once again, we see the the integrity of Scripture. If you you come here today and you think this is all just a man-made construct, that this word is written to put everybody in the best light, look at what we see here. We see the complexity of David's godly example uh, along with his sinful humanity. And instead of trying to justify his actions, they're either condemned or there's nothing said about them, but they are recorded for us to see and to discern. Now we are right to ask, why didn't David remain in Israel and trust in God? Christian, I'm talking to you. God had spared David from Saul time and time again. He even used Abigail to spare David from incurring blood guilt. And in light of the way that God had protected him all the way from chapter 18, when Saul first threw a spear at David when the evil spirit came on him, to the end of chapter 26, where twice Saul's at David's mercy, and David is the one who spares Saul. You would think that David would say, hey, the scales are starting to tip in my favor. God is going to protect me. But what do we read at the very beginning of chapter 27? David is convinced that Saul is going to kill him, and his only option is to leave Israel, the territories of Saul, and find protection with his enemy. Shouldn't he have been convinced that God would have continued to protect him? God's will... David David lost sight of something that I think we struggle with often as well. We know that God's will for David involved much more than just escaping Saul. God intended for him to be the king of Israel. He anointed him for such a thing. 
But the danger that David faced obscured that truth. And then he began forgetting God's will for his life, and he allowed the danger that he faced from Saul to put him in an even greater danger, taking up the sword against his king and his own people, thus making him a traitor. That's where David's short-sighted decision placed him as we leave chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Members of South Canyon, is it possible that we have become so overwhelmed by the emergencies in front of us that we miss the dangers that jeopardize us? And we may figuratively be jumping from the frying pan into the fire. We want relief from what's consuming all of our strength that's just occupying our heart. It's just eating away all of our money. We just want this debt to go away. We want this conflict to be resolved. We want this temptation to be fulfilled. And we just are so consumed by it that we believe that if only we could escape this, then all would be well. And yet we find ourselves taking a course, making a decision that puts us in a place where we found ourselves in more trouble. If that's your place this morning, then let me just encourage you, confess that to God. God loves you. He's chosen you. And he wants to see you learn to trust him, to praise him. And that is why we need a robust understanding of God's word, not just so that we can find chapter and verse that justifies why we get to do and we can kind of finagle things and get our way, But we need to see the bigger arc of Scripture, the principles that God teaches us of His sovereignty to show that we can trust Him. We need God's wisdom, and then we need to use God's wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says that we can't trust in our own understanding. Davis writes this in his commentary. Remember that our teacher is more merciful and patient than Saul or Achish. Your circumstances right now may seem unbearable, but God promises to be with you and to sustain you. Christian, hold fast to the grace of God and rejoice that, like David, your sins are forgiven through Jesus and that God in his grace chose to use any of us at all. It's just a joy. Now, Here's a word for the non-believer who may be with us this morning and a good reminder for us as Christians as we share the gospel. As we consider Saul, we see a man who is more concerned with outcomes than his relationship with God. He's a very task-oriented man. He's a doer. He's a list checker. And he is religious in his own way. He trades God's presence for Samuel's. And we learn that those who reject God's word will be cut off from God. I remember many years ago doing premarital counseling with a young, unbelieving couple. They didn't go to church. They didn't claim to be Christians. And so each session as we would gather, I would share the gospel with them as it related to our conversations about um, shared values, about finances, about uh, intimacy, about communication. And over those weeks, I kept seeing the young man 
He kept leaning in. He started asking more questions about the gospel. You could see conviction on his countenance. He was grieved. And every time he got so close, his fiancée would interrupt things. She would change the subject. She would distract, and we would move on. And you just see that fire that was starting to grow in his eyes. It would just, just disappear. Let me just say this. If God is pricking your heart today about your sin, don't let anything keep you from Jesus. We are not guaranteed tomorrow or another opportunity. Saul was told that, right? Tomorrow you're going to die. You will be with me. We don't know the moment where we go from hearing so much from God to silence from God. We don't know when that last penny drops. None of us knows how many times we can reject the gospel and before God will stop giving it to us. Saul's last supper reminds us of another last supper where another very religious and talented man who had preached Christ, even doing miracles in Jesus' name, he leaves a room filled with the light of heaven and he stepped out into utter darkness to betray Jesus. Jesus was born for this. He came into the darkness of this world. He was born at night in Bethlehem. He died in darkness on the cross in order to save his people from their sins. Mark 15, verses 33 and 34 tell us that darkness fell over the whole land for about three hours. God rejected his son. His son became his enemy because Jesus was bearing our sin, our guilt. And he entered the darkness in order to bring light and life to all who embrace him. And so today, we see two truths in our text. If you're here visiting with us, the horrible fate of one who rejected God's word when he found himself rejected by God. And secondly, that today is the day where God is offering real salvation, real deliverance, real life for all who run to Jesus. Perhaps, like Saul, you've been looking for answers in all the wrong places. Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, that anyone who hears his words and obeys them will find life. But the other side of that is that everyone who hears his words and doesn't obey them will fall. Friend, everyone... Every one of us in this room is going to face the grave. We are going to go down to the grave like Samuel did and like Saul and his sons and Israel's armies did. But only the Christian has confidence that Jesus' righteousness will deliver him from his sins and lead to eternal life. The unbeliever enters the grave with no such hope. So today is an opportunity for you to acknowledge your holy and sovereign Creator to renounce your sinful ways as we who are part of South Canyon have all done and to flee to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. If God's Spirit is calling you, if He is reminding you of sins and bringing them to your mind, if He is urging you to cry out and confess Jesus, then today obey His voice. I'd be happy to talk with you afterward. I'll be right outside these doors. 
Any of the elders that are on the back of your bulletin would be happy to talk with you. Meet with you over coffee to explain more about what the scriptures say. Right before we close, I'd like to just say one final word to the believer. Maybe some of us feel like we're in Saul's shoes. Like, we pray and we see our words shatter on the ground in front of us. God isn't seeming to hear us. And we feel forsaken. We feel as though he has turned his back on us. Let me just say, if that is where you are, remember what Christ endured for you. And know that God will never reject you because of that. It may seem at times God may, in fact, call us to endure and persevere in situations where we feel like we are not hearing from God. And if you're there, don't forget the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Don't forget also that those who are in Christ can never be separated from God's love or grace. We could do nothing to gain God's favor, therefore it makes sense To say there's nothing we can do to lose God's favor, to forfeit it. And so if you find yourself in this situation this morning as a Christian, let me just encourage you to persevere in your trial. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to endure. Seek the fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters here at South Canyon. People who will keep reminding you of the promises of God that are made to us in Christ. Keep God's word around you. God's spirit is in you, and God's people will prove a real comfort. You see, there is nothing more disturbing, more consequential in your life than to be cut off from God. And so this morning, whether you are a Christian who is in trouble or an unbeliever who is in trouble. The same response is for both. God is calling both people through His Word to run to Jesus. Lord God, we pray that that would be the path we pursue. That each and every person that is here this morning would be either convictionally understanding and believing that in Christ alone they find their hope in life and death. And if they are not that way, Lord, we pray that your grace and your spirit would use this moment to change hearts, to redeem, and to save. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.